We, uh, let me just give a brief recap before I read the Bible. We are in the book of Titus. It's a fascinating letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, a sort of younger preacher, an elder in the church, on Crete, the island of Crete. And Crete had a terrible reputation. And I was saying last week, and we were just seeing that, if a church, if a witness can be established on a place like Crete, which was full of always liars, lazy gluttons, evil brutes, terrible reputation, then it can be formed anywhere. But the job of Titus, his job was appoint elders who would hold to the trustworthy message. Remember that? Hold to that message, deliver the message, encourage others with that. And he must appoint people who themselves are being transformed by that message, by the truth. And we saw, didn't we, that it's not gifts, really, that Titus was looking for, but godliness. It wasn't heroes that he was after, but holiness. People set aside for the work. And now we're going to look at chapter 2. He's going to say a little bit more about what he wants Titus to teach on this island of Crete. And we can look at it together and think about how that applies to us. So can we turn up Titus chapter 2, uh, if you're in the uh, church Bibles, it is page 1198. I'm going to read the whole chapter, 1198, and I want you just to listen out, as we read, listen out for the number of times that Paul says teach, okay? <laughs> just as a little exercise, he says it rather a lot. This is what... Uh, Titus chapter 2 says, You, however, you, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, right, outline. Here's where I'm going to go with this. 
Uh, teach, you heard it there, it's about seven or eight times. Teach, 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 teach. Because our lives will do the talking, that's part one. That's point one, our lives will do the talking. So point two, our lives must be self-controlled, upright and godly. It's the second point. And then thirdly, how do we fuel that? How is that fueled? How do you strike that fire and keep it going? Answer the knowledge of the truth that Jesus, who appeared once, will appear again. That's the third point. Okay, our lives will do the talking. I think this is a fairly obvious point, but let's just see it. Okay, have a look in your Bibles. Have you got Bibles? And Becca, I think, can put the verses up as we go. Verse 5, let's just see it through the passage. So verse 5, he says a whole bunch of things. Be self-controlled, be pure, be busy at home, be kind, be subject, all those things. We'll come across that. We'll do that a bit later. We'll kind of figure out what he's saying there. But the end of the verse, so that, so that no one will malign the word of God. So if we want this to be held in honor, our lives must do the talking. That's what he's saying. Your lives have got to do the talking if you want this, the word of God, to be held in high honor. End of verse 7, similar thing. Uh, He says there, we need integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. See that? The criticisms against the church. They'll stick, those criticisms against the church, that you're arrogant, that you're bigoted, that you're proud, that you're homophobic, all of those things, they'll stick unless our lives do the talking. That's what he's saying. Same again, end of verse 10. Teach them not to steal. So he's talking about slaves here. We'll come across this again a bit later. But don't steal. Be trustworthy so that in every way you might make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. If you want the truth about Jesus to be attractive amongst our friendship groups, in our works, workspaces, in our colleagues, our lives. It's our lives will do the talking. The bishop, uh, Bishop John, he said when he was with us a few weeks back, months back maybe, uh, he said, our lives may be the only gospel that anyone reads. Do you remember him saying that? People won't read this. Well, they certainly won't read it first up. Unlikely to read this, unlikely to read a little booklet, unlikely to read a little pamphlet, but they will read your life. Your life might be the only gospel that anyone reads. And that gospel won't be attractive until our lives are compelling. It's obvious that that's the point that Paul's making there. Your lives will do the talking. Now, that's good news because I I don't know if some people think I've got to be a certain type of person to be a Christian. I've got to have all the right arguments up my sleeve. I've got to have nifty little ways of sharing Jesus with people when I'm out and about. Not really. Not really. You might have those gifts and you might be really good at sharing things with people. But really and truly, it's our lives that will draw people to Jesus. I had, um, uh, I once went to a gym a few years ago now. There was a guy, there was a big, big, big gym guy. He was, uh, he ran the gym, he was huge. And he always, he knew I was a Christian. He always used to call me over. He said, Mike, come here, come here, come here. I sort of walk over. What is it this time? He said, that Noah's Ark, he said to me one time. He said, that's, well, I'll say balderdash. That's not the word he used. He used another B word. 
that Noah's Ark's just a load of boulder dash, isn't it? And then he would say to me, how on earth did you get all the animals? How on earth did oh, Noah get all the animals in there? That sort of thing. And I would sort of say to him, do you know what? I don't, I don't really know. I'm sure someone's thought about that and written a book about it. I'm sure you could go and find a book. If you're really interested, you want to think those things through. There's lots of questions. I don't know if you get questions about your faith, why you believe the things you do, why the Bible says the things it does. And get worried about that and think that we need all the answers. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Let a life set apart for the Lord Jesus do the talking. Our lives will do the talking. The reputation that we bear as a church family and as individuals, that will do the talking. That's part, that's part one. So, point two, he summarizes this in verse 12. He says, so... End of verse 12, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Let me just give you the whole thing. The grace of God, this is verse 11, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And he gets into categories here. So let's have a little, let's run through the five categories that you probably heard as he was reading. It was older men, older women, younger women, young men, slaves. Those are the five categories. Let's just run through them and have a little think about each one. And there were a few controversial bits and pieces in there that we'll just touch on as we go. Now remember, Paul's talking to Titus. He's been to Crete. He knows what the Cretans are like. Right? Remember that? Always liars. It's chapter 1, verse 12. Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So maybe Paul's particularly got Cretans in mind as he writes this. But I'll let you decide whether similar things might apply in 21st century South End. Who knows? Let's have a look. So older men, verse 2. He's seen older men who are easily angered, a bit grumpy, dishonorable, lazy gluttons. Perhaps he's seen that. And so he wants them to practice temperance. Teach them, he says to Titus, teach them temperance to be slow to anger, slow, tempered, can bear a lot, temperance. Teach them to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith. Remember that word sound? When Jesus healed people, he would make them Sound. He would make them whole. He would make them healthy. That's the same word. He said, teach the older men to be sound, whole, healthy in faith and love and endurance. Endure. I wonder how, do you know, when he says older men there, I wonder what he was actually thinking about. You're talking about sort of first century life expectancies of maybe 45, 50. So older men... He's probably thinking maybe 30 plus, I don't know. <laughs> so 30, you know, 30-somethings out there plus. Endurance, self-control, temperance. Now, older women, what did he find on Crete? When he looked at the older ladies, he saw irreverence, gossip, and a few too many Pinot Grigios by the looks of things. And so... He says, no, don't do that. <laughs> he says, instead, be the kind of woman who can teach and inspire the next generation. 
Now, this is interesting. So he's instructing the older women to teach the young women. You'll notice if you, if you notice as I read through the passage, Titus is to teach every group, teach the older men, teach the older women, teach the slaves, teach the younger men. It doesn't actually say teach the younger women. And I wonder if Paul's just offering a bit of wisdom there. You know, leave that one-on-one or small group discipleship of the younger women to the older women. That might be wise, given that Titus, you're a young man yourself. I don't know whether he was married or not. But he's like, okay, maybe the older women could do that one. And the older women are taught to teach those younger women to love your husbands and children, be self-controlled and pure, and busy at home. Now then, (laughs) that will undoubtedly be making us twitch a little bit. But let's be careful that we don't read a sort of Victorian household back into the scriptures here. Paul was a long, long way away from the Victorian sort of 19th century. I know that in the Victorian age, men went out and did manly things, and the ladies scrubbed and they did housework, and they prepared meals and raised children, all that sort of thing. And a few waves of feminism have brought us out of that, and, but we still have a sort of a shared collective memory of perhaps those, those Victorian times, and we're like, oh gosh, we don't want to go back there. That is not the world that Paul imagines when he writes these things. Can I remind us, in the first century, no one went to work. You didn't commute. You didn't hop on the train with your iPod and go down into the city to work. The house was the place of work. Pretty much universally, it was the place of industry and everything else. But let me just tell you what kind of world Paul was a part of. If you read one of the descriptions of a wife in the Bible, Proverbs 31, here's the kind of things that happened in a household. Okay? The women there would have been industrious and entrepreneurial, buying and selling real estate, involved in trade, which may potentially have an international reach. Uh, Her business there would have a charitable enterprise, which would help the poor and the needy. Uh, She was said to be clothed with strength and dignity, speaking and instructing with wisdom, with a wide and distinguished reputation in the community. It's not the Victorian household that Paul is writing about there. He's not saying, men, you stick at, you go and do the important jobs while women, you stay at home, feed the babies. Very, very different kind of world that we're imagining. So don't, we can sort of imagine that you must be talking about the sort of Victorian area. Certainly isn't that. Um, In any case, in any case, actually, the emphasis here is being busy, not idle. That's the emphasis. Teach the younger women to be busy, not idle, and subject to their husbands. I did speak about this a few weeks ago, March 6th, when we talked about marriage for the Lord. I'm not going to go into it here because we've got too much to go through. But if you want to think about that a little bit, March 6th, marriage for the Lord, if you want to think about what that might mean. Then, young men, I love this. Young men, you have one instruction, one thing only, just one thing. Whereas everyone else had a bit of a list. Young men, be self-controlled. Enough said. Isn't it? Enough said. 
the Western world, especially today, is crying out for men who are self-controlled, decent, loving, faithful, and honorable, especially towards women. I uh, saw an article that was about a chief executive who was under investigation for making approaches on women in the workplace. And under investigation, he said, one of his, in his defense, he said, all right, fine, you know, I, I'm accepting that I'm under investigation, but I've always upheld that no means no. And this article written by a woman laid into him so hard because, of course, and it's absolutely right, he has no right to go up and make approaches and proposition women and wait and force them, if you like, or bring them to the point where they have to say, no, that was the point of the article. It's not your right to do that. Practice self-control. And in a week, let me just touch on an even more controversial topic because it's right to do these things, isn't it, in church from time to time. In a week where we have been talking about abortion, and it's come up again, especially for the states, but also here, because it's been raised as a matter of uh, the law um, and the changes to the law during COVID. In a light of uh, a week like this week, I wonder what your thoughts are about this. But here's one suggestion. I don't think this is particularly controversial. One suggestion, I'm speaking to the blokes. And I'm speaking to us blokes who are fathering children. And I'm speaking to us blokes who might be encouraging friends and other brothers in the Lord. How about we start here? How about we start with just this very simple thought that gentlemen, brothers, sons, we're going to reduce the only way, I think, or certainly a faster way that we're going to reduce the catastrophic number of abortions in the Western world, and particularly in the UK, is to accept, men, that there is always, no matter how careful you are, if you engage and you want to have sex with another woman, there is always the chance that you are going to become a parent and a father. No matter how careful you are, you are opening yourself up to that possibility. And if you are not prepared, if we are not prepared, I will tell my sons this. I will tell my two boys, if you are not prepared to raise a child for the rest of your life and you don't want blood on your hands, then for the love of God, be self-controlled. That's what I will say to my two boys. And preserve the life of the most vulnerable unborn babies. Finally, slaves, um, verses 9 and 10. Again, we're in a different world when the Bible talks about slavery, so let's just look at that momentarily. It almost certainly wasn't what we might think of when we think of the transatlantic slave trade and the brutalities of that. 
Maybe it wasn't Downton Abbey either, and upstairs, downstairs, but there was something. You can tell, even in these verses, you can tell it was somewhere in between, the kind of world that Paul's writing into. It's the kind of world where slaves could talk back to their masters, could withhold property, could, so it couldn't have been as brutal, perhaps, as maybe the transatlantic slave trade was. Nevertheless, um, there were slaves, and Paul is addressing them. And funny, isn't it, that he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't add the category of masters here. I wonder whether, actually, the church was uh, more numerous with those who were in slavery. The underclasses were making up the majority of the church rather than the overclasses, the masters. But whatever it was, whatever the world that Paul was writing into was, isn't it, isn't it fascinating that slaves, bond servants, can also be, they can be part of the church's evangelistic work. They can be integral to the church's mission by being in that place, yes, in the difficulty of that place, nevertheless, faithful, honest, trustworthy, and making the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now look, I don't think we're a billion miles away when we think that our lives actually might be quite stuck, maybe in quite a menial job. You didn't imagine, maybe when you were a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, you didn't imagine you were going to be flipping burgers in McDonald's or whatever it is, but here we are, or I have to do this job, or I, I don't like this job that I'm doing, but I've got to do it in order to put food on the table. It feels, I feel quite trapped feels quite hard. It feels quite relentless. There may even be professional jobs that feel like that. But the word of Paul to Titus, inspired by the Spirit, is you can be faithful in that, you can be honest in that, you can be trustworthy in that, and make, adorn the teaching of Jesus, make it attractive. The church has really thrived, you know, amongst the most marginalized, enslaved, the most undervalued group in the most unlikely of places. And that's because, isn't it? This is coming on to my third and final point. It's because the truth about Jesus is so compelling. Isn't it? The truth about Jesus. Remember, it's the knowledge of the truth. Chapter 1, verse 1. It's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, having that in mind will produce godly lives. What is it about Jesus then? Do you notice that Paul, having talked about slaves, he just, it's almost like he can't, the next thing that comes to his mind is Jesus. The grace of God, this is verse 11, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, even slaves. Verse 11. And it says, you know, Jesus appeared, he came amongst us, and he subjected, he gave himself. See that word there in verse 14? He gave himself. Think about it like this. He subjected himself to the harshest slave drivers. You know us human beings and our hearts, we are the hardest slave drivers. We say to God... 
God, I want stuff. I want you to sort stuff in my life. And if I don't get it, I will curse you. And if I don't get it, I will put you on a cross. That's what the human heart does. The harshest of slave drivers. And Jesus gave himself to that. Subjected himself to that. And in the wonder of God, that became for us our redemption. God was like, I'll use that act of pure tyranny and highest of treason. I will take that and I'll make it for your redemption. Can you see that the word, that is actually the word that was used to free a slave, to redeem. I'll pay the price, I'll pay the ransom price to redeem, to buy back, to get you out of that slavery. That's the word used here. So Jesus, in his first appearing, he came, he subjected himself to buy back anyone, even me. That was his first appearing. And now we sit, we sit between that appearing and his glorious second coming. These two truths should inform and shape our lives. They are the truths that go in and spark a flame and stoke those flames for godliness, for godly living. Let me put it like this. Jesus came first time round, right, and he saved us from the penalty of sin. Right, we can say it like that. Jesus first time round saved us from the penalty of sin. As we wait for his appearing, he is saving us from the power of sin in our lives, giving us the power to overcome, and one day future, soon, at his glorious coming, he will save us from the presence of sin and evil. And when we have this meal together, which we will, and the children are coming back now, we're celebrating both those things, or all three of those things, that Jesus came that first time, that he's given himself so that we can be totally forgiven, that he's renewing a people for himself. And one day, we're waiting. This is one less meal. We're having one less meal today. Yeah, come on in, children. One less meal before Jesus' glorious appearing. One less get-together. Is that how you see your Sundays? We could see Sundays like that, couldn't we? One less get-together with the kids going out to the hotel. One less sing-song as we come and sing together in church. One less communion meal until Jesus comes again. Healthy church. It's what we're after. Lives that do the talking. Lives that are upright, self-controlled, and godly, and propelled, fired, powered by the truth about Jesus and his appearing. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Father God, thank you for the children coming in. Thank you for uh, their precious young lives and the opportunity that they've had to be together and share together. Father, thank you for your words. And for those things, Lord, that are particularly relevant to our lives this morning that uh, we can think about and share together, would you let them sit there and stay there and work within us to produce 
lives that adorn, beautify, make attractive and compelling the truth about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.